Welcome to another episode of Pod for Good, a podcast where we hear from the change agents making Tulsa and the world a more vibrant and inclusive place. I am your chief philanthropod, Jesse Ulrich. And for one episode, I am merely Captain Philanthropod Chris Miller. I was demoted for joining the podcast 20 minutes late. And today, our guest is Becky Gligo, Director of Housing for the City of Tulsa and the Interim Executive Director for Housing Solutions, which is the lead organization for A Way Home for Tulsa. We talked to Becky about systemic housing issues like redlining and the upcoming eviction crisis. We also talk about how abundant, affordable housing is the best way to limit homelessness. And finally, we talk about why you should stop being a NIMBY and start being a YIMBY. Enjoy. We are very excited to have Becky Gligo on the podcast today. Becky is the, she is both, she is two things, Director of Housing for the City of Tulsa, as well as the Interim uh, Executive Director for Housing Solutions, uh, which is the lead organization for A Way Home for Tulsa, which is an initiative I'm going to let her break down for us because it confused me when I tried to figure it out. So, hi, Becky. Hi. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So, we'll get to the city stuff in a second, but can you explain to our listeners what A Way Home for Tulsa is? Yeah. A Way Home for Tulsa is what's called a continuum of care, which is really a coalition of a lot of diverse agencies. There's almost 30 of them that serve people experiencing homelessness in different ways across the city. So you have everything from law enforcement to shelter providers to legal representation are all a part of that coalition. And any continuum of care has to have per HUD what's called a lead agency. And that lead agency is really there to support, to provide data analytics, to help with strategic plan implementation for the coalition, and to serve as the grant applicant and fiscal agent for the coalition in its entirety. And so that's what Housing Solutions is. Was Housing Solutions created to be that thing for a way home for Tulsa? Yeah. So a way home, exist beforehand. So a way home for Tulsa has kind of lived in a lot of different places or the lead agency has. And most recently it was the community service council was the lead agency, but as Tulsa evolves and as the need grows, the group of agencies that are members of a way home for Tulsa came together and realized that there needed to probably for the first time be a nonprofit that all it thought about all day long was homelessness, but was not a direct service provider and was more focused on policy and data and technical assistance. And so in March, Housing Solutions opened its doors. So it didn't exist before solely to be that lead agency for the continuum of care. And so as I was prepping for this interview and thinking about homelessness, and I was thinking about a city's government relationship to to homelessness. And it got me thinking that being the housing policy director for the city of Tulsa might not actually have anything to do with homelessness at all, right? Because there's there's the economic issues around home buying and getting people to buy homes, helping them buy homes. And homelessness, while like in the Venn diagram is very close, not, is not necessarily, it might not be even in your city of Tulsa portfolio, as it were. But that, that's a question for you. Like, does that how does it come into your, I guess, your one of your day jobs? Sure. So, I mean, homelessness was always going to be a part of the housing policy director's role, because I think what we don't often talk about is how inextricably linked lack of affordable housing 
is to eviction, which leads directly to growing numbers of homelessness. And there's just a straight line through all three. And so at the top of my role at the city is really preserving and increasing affordable housing stock in the city of Tulsa. But that was always to stem our growing eviction crisis for the 11th highest evictor in the country and to make homelessness rare, brief, and non-recurring. And so while homelessness was never intended to be so front and center in my daily role, as it does now that I'm serving kind of that dual purpose, it was always going to be there. And so it made sense for me to step into this in an interim way, because I can't do my job effectively as the housing policy director if we're not thinking about the devastating consequences of not having affordable housing in Tulsa. So the last few months have been crazy for everyone. Then the last few weeks, especially, it's been especially for us here in Tulsa. A lot of people are now, I would say, who weren't already attuned to it before, are thinking more about economic inequality and how policies that maybe they have never interacted with affect other people, minorities, people of color, etc. How does a city, policy-wise, because the, the housing department at the city of Tulsa is new, correct? Like it's not that old. Nope. I was the first kind of role within the city of Tulsa specifically focused on housing. With everything that's going on, how does a city try to prioritize both people's ability to buy homes and to keep people in their homes, whether they own them or rent them or are in apartments, what have you? So I think the first thing that a city has to do is acknowledge the fact that the reason people can't afford their housing is not some sort of moral failing, but the direct result of decades of, frankly, racist housing policy that came from both the federal government and then was enacted on a municipal level. And so the reason we have folks that are struggling to find quality, affordable housing is because we had redlining, is because we had urban renewal, is because we have de facto redlining now, and that it's very hard for people of color to get adequate appraisals of their home values, to get access to capital to purchase a home. And all of that stacks up and compounds into the issues that we're seeing today. And so part of what my job is, is to create or to tear down barriers to access to capital. And sometimes that means lobbying the banks and looking at who can provide those funds or down payment assistance. And sometimes it's just creating your own funds. And so one of the things the city of Tulsa is going to do is we're launching our affordable housing trust fund that will be our own pool of local money that we can use with local policy to reinvest in communities that have been historically disinvested from and have had economic consequences as a result of that. And a lot of this will be home buyer education partnerships with banks who want to use what are called their Community Reinvestment Act funds, partnerships with nonprofits who are doing down payment assistance. But there's a lot we can do to increase home ownership and affordable housing opportunities throughout the city with a fund like that. So I, I always try to view these conversations with, okay, what is it thing what is it what is it that people do don't know about a particular issue? And I myself, like while very social justice oriented, have always worked in nonprofits up until I started my own company here. Homelessness and the issues around housing policy was not something that was necessarily like, it was not something I had run into, or it was not something in the jobs, in the nonprofit jobs I dealt with. Can you, there's no brief way to do this, but can you explain, like one, explain redlining for our listening audience, just in case they don't know exactly what that means, because it's a term that comes up. And like, I just Googled it just to make sure that what I thought redlining was, is what redlining is. Mm -hmm. And then- I'm not going to make the mistake of asking you two questions in one. So I'm going to stop there. (laughs) 
So redlining was the official policy of the Federal Housing Administration, which was the precursor to HUD, really starting in the 20s all the way up into the 50s, where they would look at a map and they would have red zones. And those red zones said to banks, to investors, to housing developers, do not build there, do not put your dollars there. And the neighborhoods that they redlined were largely neighborhoods of African-American and um, Jewish folks. And they were specifically saying, we're not going to invest in those neighborhoods. There's a really great book called The Color of Law that I think should be mandatory reading for everybody that talks about the history of redlining and talks about how it resulted in decades of wealth deprivation. Because when you think about the fundamental concept of the American dream, and I think you could argue that that's changing, but was that you own a home, right? And that generationally, you're building wealth through home ownership. That's the home that you might borrow against to send your kids to college or for your retirement. That's an asset. And so by depriving people of home ownership and home equity building, we've deprived folks of generations of wealth. There is a really great online project that the University of Richmond did called Mapping Inequality. And you can look at the actual redlining maps that were created by the Federal Housing Administration and see where those red lines were. And Tulsa's on there. And I like to show that map when I do presentations, but essentially what you have is a line cut across the city and North Tulsa is in the redlining zone. And you can now see that what that means is that it's it's still harder to get a housing loan there. Homes in certain parts of North Tulsa have not had access to capital that, that homes in South Tulsa have had. How does that, I wonder how that map lines up with the map of the federal highway system. Well, because I know, <laughs> I, I imagine it maps up pretty well. Yeah. What was essentially a line on a map was replaced with a freeway. (laughs) So, and so of course they go hand in hand. And we know now that urban renewal was simply another way to disinvest from communities and draw lines between where municipalities would invest and where they weren't. And that's, that's been a real challenge. And so even now when we're looking at how we reinvest in neighborhoods, it's like a scar that reminds us every day how folks were cut off from resources. When I first started learning about homelessness in Tulsa, the most interesting fact I learned was that the majority of homeless people, sort of both nationally, I think in Tulsa, are what's called temporarily homeless, where they are sort of Mm -hmm. back and forth between living in a place, getting evicted out of that place, working to get back into a place, and then getting evicted again. And that's a... Mm -hmm. Can you talk about how big of a problem that specifically is and how the sort of common sense way of fixing that is to make it harder to get kicked out of a house? I mean, we have, so the eviction crisis contributes directly to rising numbers of people experiencing homelessness in Tulsa, in that people have what Matthew Desmond, who wrote a great book called Evicted, and who now runs the eviction lab out of Princeton, have what he calls the scarlet E on their credit. So once you're evicted, it's very hard to find a quality living situation or rent situation. And that can have um, economic impacts. He says each each eviction could have economic impacts on a family for up to seven years. And so we see people who are evicted and then maybe they're living in their cars or they're evicted and they go to a shelter and they're able to self-resolve. But because of that eviction, the only landlords who will rent to them are ones that are going to push them right back into that eviction cycle through fines and fees and what what they call churning, which is essentially where the fees stack up so much that you're using what should have been your rent payment just to pay down the fees for a couple days of late rent. And so they are 
they are kind of directly connected to each other. And, and we do see there's a lot of invisible homelessness in Tulsa. There's a lot of people who are doing what's called doubling up. So they're sleeping on friends' couches or they're staying with family members. Like I mentioned, there are people living in their cars are what we call chronic homeless numbers, which tend to be more visible homelessness. People who might be living unsheltered are fairly low, but the, the larger kind of persons experiencing homelessness are people that you're not even seeing. And they're going to school with your children. They might work with you and they're experiencing extreme housing instability. I was just going to say like during times of economic, economic crisis, and then you, you add on top of that, a international pandemic and the, the two people who, the the people who are always hurt first in an economic downturn are those who are, were already in economically unfeasible situations and children. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what is happening now? Like, what's funny is it took a couple of weeks for people once we are where we were all locked down for COVID-19 to think about, oh, what's happening with the homeless population in Tulsa? Like, and mm-hmm. then there was concern about how it could spread in the in in shelters amongst people who live under bridges, people who you see sort of like at intersections and whatnot. So like, what is, has the city mm-hmm. of Tulsa's housing department sort of changed slightly during the pandemic to like think about what to do with these people who we can't just throw into a shelter now because that would risk them getting COVID-19? Absolutely. So, I mean, when, when this hit, I think the entire country, if not the world, realized that for the first time ever, we were not going to have best practices to go on. We were going to have to make them up. And so people serving persons experiencing homelessness across the country, I've never been on so many webinars in my life. And a lot of those just turned out to be people saying, well, what are you doing? This is what we're thinking about. But very quickly, kind of a playbook for this emerged and Tulsa used that playbook. And I I think I was uniquely and, and very gratefully positioned to be able to use my seat at the city of Tulsa and the resources available there and my position at Housing Solutions so that we could act really quickly with our partners. And so what we did is the first thing was we looked at the CDC guidance for people who were um, living in encampments and everything we read said, do not clean out those encampments because you want to shelter in place. Well, that's sheltering in place. And if we're moving people around, we're shuffling them into more populated areas, the chance for community spread is off the charts. And so we let people be, but we also wanted to get resources to them. And so we did supply drops. We had access to telemedicine. Our coordinated outreach teams pivoted, I mean, on a dime, got the PPE, went out there. I don't know about you, but for me, I got a lot of my initial information about the pandemic through Facebook, right? And press conferences that the mayor was doing and and Dr. Dart. And well, if I don't have access to Facebook, where am I getting my information? So we printed up flyers and we were able to educate folks. And that's been incredibly successful. Then we realized that our current shelter system was not going to allow for social distancing within the shelters. And we saw other cities were actually closing the doors and sending people out. And and that to me felt like just something we couldn't do. It, It felt like an abdication of our responsibility to serve. And so we stood up an emergency shelter that is jointly operated by the day center and Salvation Army that allowed for both kind of releasing the pressure valve within the current shelter system so that they could follow the CDC guidance for social distancing. And we could take more people in while allowing them to social distance. We wrapped around virtual case management and we're trying to house as many folks as we can out of that shelter. And then sort of the third phase of that is that once people got sick, 
we needed a, a place for them to be able to recover with dignity and the care that they needed. And so we opened a quarantine hotel that's operated by City Lights with uh, youth services of Tulsa's support and, and financial, they kind of act as the financial agent for it. And that allows us to both isolate our most vulnerable folks in their own room. And when people are either symptomatic and awaiting test results or have tested positive, they quarantine at that hotel. Same goal is to not release people back out onto the street, but get them while they're there into case management and housing. What's been incredible is that we, through a partnership with Morton Health, are doing universal testing in all of our shelters, and we've had less than a handful of positive cases. And so I believe the community's willingness to pivot and act very quickly, like absolutely saved lives and stopped that community spread. Yeah, it's amazing how it takes a pandemic for people to realize, oh, maybe we should take care of people. Right. I know and that when they can take a shower and have their own bed, that that dignity really can transform a person. Well, I was just thinking about the times I've stopped by the day center for the homeless and what's it called? Iron Gate? Iron Gate? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know how they're doing it now, but those people were packed in very close waiting in line to get food. Yeah. And I imagine they're not doing that now, but... Yeah. yeah. Iron Gate shifted to grab and go. I mean, everybody just changed overnight. It was, it was amazing, but they shifted to grab and go. So, so that people weren't kind of sitting in a crowded dining room, which that has its own challenges, but, but they never shut down. They kept feeding folks and it was pretty great. Uh, they've also supplied the food for the hotel and the emergency shelter as well. So Iron Gate's really kind of been an unsung hero. I have, I feel there's a lot of unsung heroes of this just because people pivoted really really, really quickly. We interviewed the executive director of Hunger Free Oklahoma, and they switched on a dime to be like, all right, well, like we were yeah. in direct service before, but we are now. And yep, absolutely. It's uh, something nonprofits are not say known best for is being nimble. So no. it was impressive. <laughs> I mean, we opened housing solutions two weeks before the pandemic started. And so I was like, well, at least we weren't up long enough to have an established routine because we're throwing all of that's it true. out That's true. That's true. Did you, so you had like at least one meeting in person before everyone was locked down? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so I know that there have been a lot of pushes to try to use data to predict homelessness, or at least predict when mm-hmm. people may experience homelessness or when they're getting close to it. There have been all kinds of data points that the city of Tulsa is using as well. Can you talk through what it why that's important and what it looks like to try to use data to predict people who might be in that, in those positions. I mean, I think the the best approach is always a proactive approach. And so where we've really come at that since I've been on board is trying to prevent eviction and knowing that our eviction crisis directly feeds our rising numbers of people experiencing homelessness. And so currently we're in a partnership with um, behavioral insights through what work cities to use water billing data and hopefully we'll expand to some other utilities so that when folks, that's usually the last thing that happens before you can't pay your rent is you can't pay your utilities. And, and so when people are running into that sort of crisis, we're able to text them information about where to go to get rental assistance, legal assistance, know your rights kind of training. And we're steering people that way to 211, which we're essentially using as our our entry point for all things social service. What I tell people is think of 211 as 911 for social services. And so we piloted that and and we're actually expanding it now to not just to tenants, but to landlords. Like here's how you can help your tenant. 
And we've had really great results from the initial pilot, and we're going to be expanding that. Because again, if we can if we can prevent the eviction before it starts, that's better for the landlord because it costs them money to go through the eviction process and lose a tenant. And it's certainly better for the tenant because once that eviction is filed, like I was saying earlier, that's the scarlet E on their credit report that's going to make it just that much harder for them to find stable housing going forward. So kind of maybe... Related to that, so what is a, a fact or data point that people who are not well-versed in the problem of experiencing homelessness wouldn't know and would be shocked by? I think there's quite a few. I'm shocked every day. One is that over 12% of our current homeless population are young people who are aging out of foster care, which is, to me, really horrifying. Another thing that we see that's, that I think is really stunning, but not surprising, but it's just not a, a way that we view the world, is that areas that we have concentrations of high eviction are the same areas where we have schools with chronic absenteeism rates that are off the charts. And so this is directly affecting student performance and school stability in ways that I think we've never really talked about holistically before. The other thing I like to share with people is that most folks do what we call self-resolve with homelessness. And so our chronic homeless population is incredibly small. And a lot of folks just access the system of homeless care at one point during the year because they need food or they need help with rapid rehousing or they need a place to stay for a couple of nights before their unemployment check kicks in. And so a lot of people are churning through this system. We don't have a ton of folks who are just chronically homeless and have been so for a year or more. So what, I I guess maybe something would help me is what is the definition of chronic homelessness versus temporary homelessness? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So chronic homelessness means that you have to have been homeless for over a year. And so, like I said, most folks self-resolve a lot quicker Mm -hmm. than that. So b- before you worked for the city of Tulsa and uh, Housing Solutions, you worked for the Tulsa Public Schools district. Yeah, for a year. And mm-hmm. the thing Chris and I have learned as we've you know volunteered inside schools is the amount of kids who the reason why they either aren't coming to school as often as they should be, or it's hard for the school to contact their families is because they are homeless. And do you have sort of numbers on the amount of TPS students who are either are or have been homeless? I don't have that number offhand, but I think what makes that number really tricky to be to properly represent the scale of the problem is that so many of those folks are homeless in that, again, they're sleeping in their car, they're couch surfing, they're staying with friends. They might not be the folks that are living in the shelter, but they do have that kind of, they're underhoused or they have that housing instability, but they might not even consider themselves homeless because of that, right? I have a place to live. It's just my my sister's couch. But Kendall Huerta at TPS is their homeless services liaison. And, and I know she has the most up-to-date numbers. What I will say is, we're looking down the barrel of the the largest eviction crisis that Tulsa has ever seen. And we were the 11th highest in the country on a good day. And so if we don't get in front of that, before September when the CARES Act expires, we will see thousands of Tulsa students become homeless over the next 12 months. And I imagine it'll be hard to learn remotely while homeless. Yeah. So. Right, right. Your first your first instinct is not where is my internet? It's where is my food and my roof yeah. and a shower. 
Yeah. Jesse, yeah, is this where it. you go off on your rant about how you think internet should be a utility rather than a well, luxury? I well, I don't have to now, Chris. <laughs> so, but yes, it should be. All right. <laughs> I'll tell you that my my meeting before this one was the internet task force that we're doing right now to try to figure out how to get it more widespread. And even in the affordable housing trust fund, where we have some landlord incentives that are going to launch, we're prioritizing landlords who are going to provide free utilities and internet for their tenants. So I couldn't agree more that that's something that's become like water for Mm. most of us. Yeah, Chris. (laughs) I didn't say I disagree. I just like that. It seems like (laughs) even if something's tangentially related to the internet, you find a way to to throw in how it should be a utility. I'm very good at that. You gotta have focus. Yeah. You gotta yeah. have something to well, focus. Chris, on. you missed my. I got to. I got to bring the federal highway system into oh. the conversation earlier. So, because like she was talking about a map of of redlining, and I was like, "Does that map match up with the federal highway system?" And she was like, "Huh, weird. It does." So, <laughs> yeah. So okay. So let's talk about like. There's a lot of pre the weirds, pre the pandemic, and even kind of during it, Telsa has been doing a, a marketing job on itself, trying to convince people to move here, say, build a factory here. Yeah. And they, one of the things they talk about is the low cost of living, right? That you can live in a bigger home or apartment than you can in other cities. And I know this for a fact, as I moved from Boston back here, and I live in much bigger places now that cost way less, which is great. But yeah. I also make way less. So what is it? So on top of working on homelessness, like, there's sort of the step right above homelessness, which is where you can afford to live, but that's about it. So how do you how do you develop a sort of public and sort of private affordable housing, especially in areas where, say, people don't necessarily want those things or they think they don't want those things? Yeah. So let me back up and say that I, I'm from California and friends and family are like, you work on affordable housing? in Oklahoma. And I'm like, absolutely. And, and the thing I like to share at Thanksgiving is that a third of Tolsons, a third of Tolsons are housing burdened or cost burdened in their housing. And of that third, half of them pay more than 50% of their take-home pay towards their rent or their mortgage, which means your car breaks down, your kid gets sick, you're done. And 52% of Tolsons are reliant on some form of public assistance to meet their basic needs. And so while we are relatively affordable compared to other parts of the country or the coastal cities, we are not affordable based on our current wages. It takes $23 an hour working full time if you have childcare costs as a single parent here to afford a two bedroom apartment, like a very modest two bedroom apartment. And that is what, almost three times our minimum wage. And so there are challenges to that that we're going to have to supplement. I will say that we can never, if all we do is build affordable housing, we will never keep up with the demand if some of those systemic things aren't changed. We just won't. And that's pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, sometimes I can't even think about it because it just feels so overwhelming and you just got to put one foot in front of the other. So I think what we're doing with the city's affordable housing strategy is exactly what you said in terms of lining up public and private investment to create affordable housing. But we do have deep nimbyism in Tulsa, and that stands for not in my backyard for for non-housing dorks. And so I think most people love the concept of people being able to afford their housing on paper. But one, there's a lot of stereotypes out there about what affordable housing means. And 
and it can be hard to break through that NIMBY wall. And so some of the things we're doing, first of all, is I have a 70 person advisory board that ranges from people living in neighborhoods to some of our most successful local developers who both crafted the strategy with me and serve as its ambassadors because one person from the mayor's office saying you should have affordable housing in your neighborhood is not going to make the change as 70 really diverse perspectives singing in concert about this. The other thing is that part of the affordable housing trust fund includes landlord incentives because at the end of the day, financial incentive works to get landlords to really kind of come over the edge to work with or rent to tenants that they might not normally. So formerly justice involved Tolson's folks who have some sort of housing subsidy, people who've been evicted before, people who might have an undocumented citizenship status. And so those incentives will hopefully attract some landlords to work with tenants they've never worked with before. And I'm a big believer in proximity. The best case we can make for affordable housing in your neighborhood is to put affordable housing in your neighborhood. And then you will realize that it's no different than it was two days ago. And I almost every person in Tulsa probably has somebody in their neighborhood who receives some sort of government subsidy for their rent. And they don't know that. And so I think we've just got to keep expanding the reach of where we're putting this in. And that doesn't mean we need to come slop some giant brick apartment building down in your residential neighborhood. That's the affordable housing of old. What this is now is just a really diverse housing typologies, ways to infill affordability and really give choice to both the neighborhoods themselves and the people who need that affordable housing about where they live and what it looks like. Does that answer your question? Yes. Yeah. And related to that, I know there has been uh, somewhat of a push to create sometimes called mixed income housing so that you can create a situation where it's not, there's those people who need subsidies, need whatever. And then there's me. It's, it's let's create a community where everyone sort of can live together and interact. Mm -hmm. I think anybody who is a, a student of kind of the history of housing throughout this country will tell you that concentrations of poverty and all affordable buildings are a failed experiment and that the future is really mixed income housing. And that could mean that it's still up to workforce affordability. It doesn't mean that you have to have luxury and subsidized housing, although you certainly could. And we've seen buildings where that works really well. But yeah, concentrating poverty just creates a desert of resources. It it creates an otherness and we've seen it fail time and time again. So even HUD has gotten out of the business of traditional public housing where you have those deep concentrations and has said what we're going to support are things like the RAD program, which is really kind of going towards a more mixed income model, choice neighborhoods like we're seeing happen in the River West area. Those things can be painful in and of themselves, but the future of housing is no longer concentrating all one income type in one place. So not those, I mean, and I'm making an assumption here, but- those, what I I think other people refer to as sort of like Section Eight apartment complexes, right? Where right, okay, right. Which I always thought was weird. Like, why are again these people are already stigmatized? Like, why are we also like make making them like making them live in a certain area and only with people in their exact same sort of situation? I mean, I well, what's really interesting about 
that is so the section eight program what we call section eight the formal name for it is the housing choice voucher <laughs> program and the uh, whole point of it is that you had a voucher instead of going to live in public housing you had a voucher to choose where you wanted to live but a landlord in the private market had to agree with that so when we talk about section eight apartment buildings in tulsa that means that everybody who lives there chose to live there which means they had no other option. And so that's, that's I think, NIMBY's worst version of things, is that in theory, those people with those vouchers should have been able to live in any neighborhood in Tulsa and had the subsidy kick in. And instead, they've been forced to pick between two or three massive apartment buildings where the landlord is probably not mm. doing a very great job with maintenance and upkeep. Um, because nobody else wants them because of stigma. Well, and and that's kind of that does bring up sort of the related problem, the other side, which is absentee landlords or frankly bad landlords that that are bringing people in because they know that those people don't have a choice. So they bring them in, they mm-hmm. they get their rent or subsidies for a certain period of time. They know that their tenants are likely not going to fight them on things because they don't have anywhere else to go. So it creates sort of a self-sustaining mm-hmm. system where once those tenants finally do complain, the landlord just finds some excuse to evict them and just keeps the money they've had and never goes and, and improves their buildings. Yeah. I mean, when you don't have choice, you're you're much more um, vulnerable to a predatory situation from a landlord. And, and that's what- And how see. do you attack that side of the problem? Mm-hmm. We have to create more choice. So one, we have to create more affordable housing. We have to incentivize more landlords to accept people who might not meet their normal screening criteria. And we have to hold the bad landlords accountable. Our research shows that the majority of them are not local. They're large corporations from out of state who have apartment buildings like this all across the country. And so I think part of part of the strategy is working with a coalition of um, Tolsons, including landlords and property managers from here that that have standards and expectations for their industry and saying this is the this is what we would expect every Tolson to be able to encounter in their tenancy. And that's going to be a hard battle, especially in a place where property rights are really highly valued. And and it's hard to look at these things and not feel like every landlord is being attacked. But we are going to have to set a standard of tenancy together to get that to stop and to give tenants other options. So homelessness is it's one of those problems that's so sort of pervasive and large that it's very hard for, say, a regular person who cares about homelessness to, to mm-hmm. feel helpless in the sense that they don't know what they can do. What can people do mm-hmm. to help? Yeah. Well, the easiest thing you can do is donate. <laughs> there are a ton of organizations within the city of Tulsa that serve persons um, experiencing homelessness that really rely on your donations. And so you can go to Way Home for Tulsa, AWH4, the number 4T.org. And there's a list of agencies that you can donate to there. You can also donate your time. Right now we're putting together what's going to be a pretty dynamic volunteer database with different opportunities. And so we recognize that folks may be comfortable with with different levels of interaction. And so we'll be providing volunteer training and volunteer opportunities across the sector. At a very macro level, you can support and lobby your local lawmakers for more affordable housing in your neighborhoods. The cure for homelessness is more affordable housing, period. And people can't sometimes cut through the trauma that they're experiencing 
from homelessness if, if they don't have a, a decent, safe place to live and those options are limited. And so being a yes in my backyard person, talking to your city councilor about how important it is to approve funding for these affordable housing programs, that is the best way that you can advocate for people experiencing homelessness in your city right now. And, Excellent. And just... Well, just to, to kind of add on to that, so that is kind of the, the concept of, of housing first approach to homelessness rather than mm-hmm. you must do this or that or this to qualify for housing. Yep. Yep. There's a lot of different philosophies on on homelessness. I mean, even in Tulsa and, and among homeless service providers, there's a lot of different philosophies. But what we've seen across the board is that housing is a, is a key piece of ending homelessness. Now that does not mean we give you keys and see it later. <laughs> that housing first means we get you housed and then we wrap around whatever services you need. Maybe that's mental health services. Maybe that's addiction supports. Maybe that's um, harm reduction. Maybe that's employment counseling. And, and so part of this is also assessing each individual and figuring out what's going to set them up for longest term success. But being unhoused, every day that someone is unhoused, whether they're in a shelter setting or an unsheltered setting, comes with its own form of trauma versus being in a space that is yours, that is safe, where you can have your things and have your space to start to recover from that trauma. And it may take two or three times before we find the right spot for you. And that's okay. But housing first is what we've seen work across the country. So you kind of, you mentioned a little bit about how people can, you're creating some volunteer opportunities, but we do like to finish with just giving you the opportunity to kind of plug anything you haven't talked about, whether it is an event online or in person or just ways that people can connect with your organization. So just any plugs that you have that you haven't, we haven't had a chance to talk about. Sure. I mean, so if you are a social media person, uh, Housing Solutions of Tulsa on Facebook and Instagram is really where we're broadcasting not only our efforts, but the efforts of all of our partner organizations. If you're interested about learning more, all of our Away Home for Tulsa Leadership Council meetings are public and they're um, broadcast on Facebook Live. Uh, so I would, our next one will be in August. And so you'll see some some upcoming materials for that. I would invite anybody who wants to just listen in and learn more to do so. And for the city of Tulsa, you're going to see some very exciting announcements coming soon around that affordable housing trust fund and some other releases of studies and plans that are coming up. So I would just say, stay tuned, be involved, and we're going to have some good stuff coming everybody's way. The the last thing in the before times, before the pandemic, when we were able to record in person and people would come to my to my home, to my office, to my studio slash nerd cave, uh, we'd usually ask our guest, who has probably had been weirdly looking around my studio for the last hour, what it is. Is there something that calls to them? Is there something they're curious about? And then we would ask them about that. What we've been doing in sort of the virtual setting is just asking you during this time, like what has been your your sort of your comfort, your pop culture comfort food? Like what is it you've been doing when you're not working? Which for someone who has two full-time jobs, I imagine is that's a limited amount of time. But when you give yourself a break for 15 minutes, what do you do with yourself? I've been watching a lot of Veep because I just love that show so much. And then the embarrassing answer is I've also been watching a lot of Real Housewives. And then taking walks. I think I've taken more walks around my neighborhood and just noticed beautiful things 
that I have since I since I moved to the city two years ago. So, so those have been my two big things. So, if, so in the in the Veep Parks and Rec debate about the the world oh, you live in, yes. uh, you, I'm guessing I'm guessing you're a Veep person. Oh no, I I mean what I actually live in is absolutely Parks and Rec. I, I live by the Leslie Nope quote of when people are yelling at me, all I hear is them caring loudly. That's fine. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. That's great. Yeah. Um, yeah the, I turned to that show during almost every dark period uh, in, in my yeah. life because shows makes me feel good. Like, I mean, people yeah. normally say like Veep, Veep is more like real life, but I'm like, I really, I feel, I feel like that just depends on how you view life. Mm. So. Right. Right. But no, I think most people, I hope most people are more parks and rec than deep. <laughs> I love that show, but they're terrible yeah. people. <laughs> yes, they are indeed. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk to us, especially on your way to a, a well-earned vacation. So yes, yeah, so thank you again for talking with us. I'll make sure to list those, both the websites and some of the books that you mentioned in our show notes mm-hmm. yeah. so that our listeners yeah. can read them. Because one of those books I want to read now too and we'll make sure that they, they know about those Facebook live meetings and mm. all the great information you gave us. Great. So awesome. Yeah. The color of law should be required for every person in America. Mm-hmm. It's, it's devastating, but fascinating. So we'll read that what, what, right, right after watching some Veep. So you feel real <laughs> yes. optimistic. about things. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thanks guys for your time. Thank you all for listening to our conversation with Becky. To find out more about A Way Home for Tulsa, click on the link in our show notes. Also, in those show notes, you will find links to all the books Becky mentioned. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. And again, Tulsa, be safe out there, wash your hands, and get it done by wearing a mask. <laughs> <laughs>